The following is Nature of Business with Chrissy Coughlin in association with GreenBiz.com. Welcome back. This is Chrissy Coughlin. You're listening to Nature of Business. And we are excited to have with us today a very special guest, Mark Stoiber. And Mark is coming at us from Canada. He is a Canadian, Vancouver. Are you in Vancouver right now, Mark? No, Chrissy, I'm up in the Northwest Territories in Yellowknife, actually. Oh, my goodness. Okay, you're always traveling. (laughs) I'm up here here at at a tourism convention, of all things. A tourism convention. I want to be there. (laughs) <laughs> I don't know. If I didn't do. know that. It's pretty cold up here right now, and uh, yeah, it's pretty freezing out actually. So I don't know if you want to be it's, here right now. Really? Well, you're probably inside though, right? I mean, they're not. Uh, well, yeah, you're we in. are inside. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's very, very nice to have you. I'm, I'm, I'm thrilled that you've, uh, that you've taken the time out of your tourism. Um, or I, I guess it probably has. It's just getting started. So to start your morning yeah. with uh, nature of business, um, greatly appreciated. So well, let's talk about you. You you are a, um, first of all we, we've we've spoken, but we actually quite a bit. We've but we met in person a few uh, weeks ago in San Francisco, and we immediately there was definitely a great energy there. And one thing I picked up about you is just that you have so much um, passion about what you do. And you are um, really working hard to what you call build future-proof brands, which we'll talk about. Um, You're you're basically um, thinking way, way outside the box as far as I can see. Talk to me about where this is, why, and where this has come from. Where this came from, well, I was, um, uh, for the longest time, I was a copywriter in advertising and, and uh, then a creative director of ad and design agencies. And I did that for oh, about 20 years. And uh, there just comes a point in time, I guess it was when I had kids or, or I just got good at the game. I'd won all the awards and I was rising up pretty fast. And I just got to the point where I said, well, is that it? You know, I felt like I'd sort of won the Super Bowl. And what do you do after you win the Super Bowl? You just go back and win the Super Bowl again. And I go, well, I've done that, you know. And, and so I was, I was searching. And, um, and uh, I couldn't find any satisfaction in doing advertising because I thought, you know, here I am just selling stuff for people. No matter what they want, uh, I, I'll sell it, you know. And there was no questions asked as long as they paid the bills. And um, so I, I became dissatisfied with that. I wanted more. And then I, I, I moved my family from Toronto, where I was living at the time, to Vancouver. And I fell in with a group that I, I call, you know, half-chokingly the Green Mafia. Because we, mm-hmm. these were the folks, um, these were sort of the, the, the granddaddies of Green, the, the David Suzuki's of the world. And these are the folks who, you know, they've been in it since the old days. And they were pretty hardcore and um, they they were a pretty closed circle at the time, and here I came as a as a guy, you know, who's working for the man, and not only that, but being a, a cog in the wheel of capitalism. Um, you know, I thought, oh my God, what are they, what are they going to do? And they just welcomed me. They said, finally, somebody's come from the dark side, you know, and uh, they welcomed me with open arms. And they said, why don't you use your force, your powers, your your skills for good instead of just selling stuff? Why don't you sell good stuff? And I thought, well, what a novel idea. I'd honestly never thought of that. And um, and so I started my own green brand agency called Change. 
And I stuck with that for five years. But what I found was that um, my vision of green wasn't coming to life. It wasn't, you know, uh, this was the time of Al Gore, Hurricane Katrina. I thought green brands would populate the earth. You know, everywhere we went down the shopping aisles, we'd see white and green and, and, you know, people would be running in slow motion in front of windmills and driving white Priuses and that didn't happen. And, uh, and, and so I said, well, what is the future? And what I found uh, more and more companies were coming to me, companies like Unilever and Molson, and they were saying, instead of just branding green, why don't you help us build green? Because we don't even really know what to build here. So I slid kind of into innovation. And I thought, wow, this is exciting. This is way better than selling stuff. Making stuff is way better than selling stuff. So um, after five years with change, I sold my company to Maddox Douglas, an innovation firm based in Chicago. And I went to work for them for a year as their head of green innovation um, Unfortunately, I mean that that lasted for a year. But their prime uh, their prime uh, clients were in insurance and financial, and that didn't mesh that well with green. It was just a, too big of a, a leap. And mm-hmm. uh, so I went on my own in the spring of this year, and I, I'm a consultant now. And it's funny because you know the, you talk about the the seven year overnight success. Um, things are going extremely well, but I believe that that's all a result of having taken this journey. You know, it doesn't doesn't come easy. It doesn't come fast. And the world of green has evolved so much and it's gotten so different from what I first encountered. But it's, it's so exciting now because it has morphed into so many new things that so many people don't understand. And that's great. Turmoil and um, not knowing what the future brings uh, makes for very, very fun business. Absolutely. You know, it's funny. I, I, That's great to hear your story because I I think that a lot of times people who have are embedded in the green movement and have been for for years and years, um, perhaps unlike David Suzuki, come from it in such a they come from it from one angle. And when you bring another angle in and you come from a different world and then you embrace innovation and you know, quote unquote green, I think you do bring a, div- you think sort of create a 3D model there as opposed to, you know, two dimensional model. It's kind of the way I'm sort of thinking about it. My mind goes in like visuals here. So, um, well, you that's know, neat- it's, it's interesting what you say. It's interesting what you say, because what I found the big problem that I encountered when I first saw the green, um, the green folks, the green mafia, uh, was that they tended to think in terms, they tend to frame their thinking in terms of the problem. They always talk about the problem. This is the problem, that's the problem, this is the problem, that's the problem. And I, as a marketer, my job is to convince people of something, and I can't convince somebody by constantly harping on the problem. It's like your mom telling you you're going to freeze and you better wear three pairs of pants and your toque. And, you know, you might listen to her, but you're not going to like it. What you want to do is frame it in terms of the solution. And, I mean, that goes to the core of what I do. I frame uh, a situation in terms of a solution and saying how by doing something, you're going to be taller, sexier, you know, more handsome, richer, and more popular with, with people. Um, and that was a big shift for the folks um, in the old school green movement, you know, because they, they, they didn't want to think of solutions. They wanted to think of, we just have to turn off the lights and turn off the heat and sit there in the cold. And, you know, it didn't make for a very happy bunch of people. No, and it's not going to invite people in who are, you know, no. somewhat naysayer about the movement in general. Well, it's not going to invite in the mainstream. And unless we hit the mainstream, we're going to forever be a niche 
And if we're a niche, there's no point to us. You know, we're not going to affect true change unless we hit the mainstream. And they're not listening to people telling them how evil they are. You know, at the very best, they just go catatonic and, you know, shift their mind to other things. At the very worst, they turn into haters and deniers, you know. Right. Right. And that's very hard to switch. So, so when you, when, well, let's talk about solutions because I think that one of the interesting, what I see a lot in my work is that there are a lot of companies out there, and I'm sure you see the same thing, and that are doing really cool stuff and they aren't getting the word out. So when you talk about solution, a lot of it is that, do you find in your work that it's just sitting down with them and saying, you actually have quite a bit going on here that's really positive. Let's just put this together and, and, and get it out to the world and, and, and talk about the positive aspects of your business that no one knows about. Everybody thinks you're just polluting or you're doing this or that, but you actually, your, your plants are doing this, your employees are doing this. Do, do you find that? It's, it's, you know, it's interesting. That is exactly the spot that I'm in, but one step further down the evolutionary path because um, uh, not that long ago, big companies like Unilever were coming to me and saying, Mark, you know, our factories are acknowledged as some of the greenest in the world. They've won the Financial Times greenest packaged goods company in the world, um, I don't know, several years running now. And uh, do you know about that? Of course not. Nobody knows about that. So they're saying, Mark, what do we do here? We've got a terrific uh, process for getting things made, whether it's soap or shampoo or what what have you, um, but we're not getting any credit for it. Now, we are deriving efficiency from it, and we are building a whole bunch of other great green attributes. You know, we have more loyal workers, we have uh, energy efficiency, et cetera, et cetera, but we're not building any brand benefit, and darn it, we're a brand company. So what do we do? And we grappled with that for a while, and what I've seen happen, it's actually one step further down the evolutionary path. Um, the companies that seem to be the most enlightened and seem to be leading in this area have jumped past brand. And what they've done, you look at companies like Nike. Um, they're one of the greenest companies out there, greenest big companies out there. And you look at shoes like the Air Jordan, the 23rd incarnation of the Air Jordan, one of the greenest sneakers in the world. But nowhere on that shoe or on the box is there any indication that that shoe is anything but ultimate athletic performance. There is no indication of green. Now, Michael Jordan, an interesting anecdote, when he first saw the shoe that was being built and they said it was a green shoe, he said, I don't want a green shoe because it's going to fall apart. There's the, the old perception thing. But when he saw the shoe and they explained to him the technology that was going into making this green, he said, I want every shoe like this. So here's what big brands are doing. The smart big brands now are building green into their product. They are not, however, um, muddying the water of their brand by saying it's the green soap or it's the green shampoo or it's the green shoe or the green banking service. They're just saying it's a, it's a shoe that sticks to our brand vision of ultimate athletic performance, period, full stop. However, what they're doing is they are seeding the message with bloggers and folks like yourself and myself. I do a lot of writing about companies like this. So what they're doing, they're getting the word out in kind of a third-party way so that folks like you and me can spread the word about this virtuous brand, this innovative brand, and they get credit for it, but they never, ever have to muddy up the water of their brand. They don't introduce green into a brand where green isn't really part of the brand DNA. 
So um, that's where I'm at right now with a lot of companies that are saying, what do we do to get the word out? And I'm saying, hold on, do you want to get the word out? Or do you just want third parties to get the word out for you so you get credit for it without having to appear to be trying so hard? So it's, a, it's an interesting evolution, one that I never saw coming. I never would have pictured this five years ago. No, I, I would not have either. And I think that that's, you know, I'm always, when there's a large company that isn't just like exactly what you say, that isn't built on green, they're not, they're not like Ben and Jerry's, you know, I've had their former CEO and he's talked about, you know, they, they were built on green. There were two guys that just, you know, started this company and they were tree huggers, but businessmen. And, and so, so for them, that was part of their initial brand. But for a company such as a Unilever or a Nike, it's, it's, it, you have to, I think people get a little bit wary because of this, you know, infamous word that we have out there called greenwashing and people get worried yeah. that they're just jumping on the bandwagon and saying, oh, we're just green. We have a green section of our, of our line or this or that. And I think that the third part, it's third party verification is, uh, is, is, is definitely a, a wave of the future. I, it's good to hear you say that. Now there's another side to that. I just did a, uh, I just talked to the folks at Patagonia, and a funny thing happened. Patagonia obviously died in the wool green. Uh, green, green company, very, very much about saving the environment and, and keeping, preserving things for, for generations to come. They also make extremely expensive clothing. And mm-hmm. um, uh, I did this story. I talked to the, the head of sustainability there, Rick Ridgway, and he said, you know, a funny thing happened. The harder the recession hit, the more we were selling. And we weren't reducing our rate to sell stuff. We weren't discounting stuff. We were selling expensive stuff. And we could not figure it out until some of our friends said, you know, the thing about Patagonia is that it's awesome clothing. Not green clothing, not environmental clothing. It's just awesome clothing. It's built to last. And the philosophy or the culture shift that seemed to be happening is that people said, in tough times, I am not going to go to TJ Maxx or, or up here Winners and buy clothing by the pound. I am going to buy one good piece, and I'm going to buy that piece from a company that lines up with me as far as values go. And so they started to see sales go up at a time when people had less money in their jeans than ever before. And so you've got companies that are dyed in the wool green, and by aligning their product, not so much the green brand, but by aligning their product with what people wanted, uh, sort of at that moment in time, they are making big headway too. But again, they're not coming out and saying buy it just because it's green. They're saying buy it because it's great. And by the way, our values line up with your values. So, you know, everyone's a winner. I have to say that I'm one of those people. So I get it. <laughs> <laughs> I get it. Yeah. Let's talk, Mark, about future-proofing brands. I love it. Yeah, it's a, it's a pretty cool, it's a pretty cool soundbite, isn't it? Future Proof came up uh, through reflection that came up because, uh, as I mentioned before, I had a green, I was, I was in advertising. Um, I was disenchanted with advertising. So I built up a green brand agency. And then I saw the world of green shifting away from my vision of green, where green would be a real product differentiator. And so I went into innovation uh, with Maddox Douglas. As I mentioned, I'd learned a ton of stuff there. And I said, you know, Based on all the things that I've learned on this career path, I see that there's something bigger than green, something bigger than conventional brands, something bigger than innovation that's sitting there, and that will be the future of brands. And my, my thing is to help companies navigate 
the future, uh, you know, and my specialty just happens to be brands. So I, I thought to myself, you know, what sort of a brand will be able to survive the future? And I identified several things about the future. You know, I said, you know, we are living in a time of, of financial chaos. I mean, nobody needs a reminder of that. Um, we are also living in a time of uh, environmental chaos. Everybody knows that. Uh, but there are other things. We're living in a time of information chaos, where we've got more uh, more information than we can handle, or new media, new ways of interpreting and getting information. And a lot of people are baffled by this and confused. And finally, we're living in a time of cultural chaos. You know, uh, in the United States, you see this for, with with great migration from the south. But in all countries, you know, especially in the developing world and in Europe, you're seeing mass migration of uh, people from one culture to the next, and they're butting into each other, creating this crazy confusion. And people are scared, and they're confused, and they don't know where to turn. And brands have traditionally been something that people could turn to for security. They buy things, they identify with them, but that's all changing now. Um, So I said to myself, how could I help create brands that, like a salmon, swim upstream effortlessly in this sea of chaos. And that's why I started uh, sort of working on the idea of future-proof brands. Mm-hmm. Now, future-proof brands, uh, they have uh, certain identifiers. I think sustainability, as we talked about with uh, Nike and um, Patagonia, sustainability has to be built into this brand. You know, that's just smart business. You want a brand to be have, have sustainable attributes because if it doesn't, it could expose itself to punitive environmental legislation. And in a world of diminishing resources, you don't want your product to get more and more expensive. You want it to stay at the same level of price. Right. Um, but that's only part of it, you know. You can't hang your hat on green. So I said, okay, a future-proof brand also has to have innovation built in. Now, most companies, when they talk about innovation, they talk about, you know, same Coke, different shiny new can. You know, this is something I saw in packaged goods products to no end, where they would just take one product and they would subtly shift it. You know, they take a car model and they would just put new chrome on every year for 10 years and try to pass it off as an innovation when it wasn't, (laughs) you know. And, And so you need to have a plan for creating not only incremental innovation like that, small innovation, but also big, world-changing innovation. Otherwise, you're going to find yourself with that car with new chrome on it suddenly lapped when people don't need cars anymore. And some smart dot-com company has figured out how to create a car that isn't a car, and suddenly you're dead. You're history. Mm. You're, the, you know, you're the horse and buggy. Um, another element is design. And design addresses a number of elements of, of this chaos, most particularly, though, the cultural chaos. You know, Hollywood isn't the arbiter of good taste anymore. Um, Developing world uh, is no longer the arbiter of all things that are good and true and innovative. I mean, innovation is coming from everywhere. Uh, People are speaking a myriad of languages, culture clash. What do people understand? They understand design, and not just design as a logo or a pretty picture or some nice color, but if you look at things like the iPad, if I put an iPad in front of a five-year-old kid, they can start using that iPad and have fun with it within five minutes. Yeah. That's good design. And that's, you, can, you can have a five-year-old from Africa or a five-year-old from India, and they will both have fun with that iPad within five minutes. Mm. That's just great design. The next mm. element of future-proof brands, I believe, is deep insight. And I look at companies, um, you and I were both at the Green Biz Innovation Forum, we look at companies like HP and they said, you know, 
are we in the printer business or are we in the transfer of information business? And we are in the transfer of information business. We just happen to make printers. What would happen if we ran out of paper and there were no more printers? And they invented, um, they invented electronic paper, essentially a, a piece of paper that works like an iPad. You can reprogram it and read it and then reprogram it and read it again. And I thought, wow, that's a real insight. You know, uh, they discovered that they're not in the printer business, but instead they're in the transfer of information business. Yeah. And um, I love that sort of a deep insight because that sets them up for the next 50 years. Mm-hmm. And finally, the, the final element that I've identified as part of a future-proof brand is social interaction. And you see a lot of companies today saying, well, we got our Facebook page, we got our Twitter feed, we're covered, we're done. And I'm going, guys, you, you know, Twitter, Facebook, they're tactics, they're tools, you know, they're paintbrushes, they're not the painting. Um, and uh, I believe that the brand world that I came up in, uh, you know, the 1980s, 1990s brand world, brands were a bit like show windows, shop windows, where you could look in, press your nose against the glass, but there was no interaction. They kept things pretty. They turned the lights off at night. You didn't see the past the, past the window. Okay. And now brands are like fishbowls. You know, where I can walk all around the fishbowl, I can look in the fishbowl, I can even stick my hand in there and muddy up the water a little bit, scare the heck out of the fish. Well, that's the modern brand. And if a brand isn't prepared to have consumers interact on a pleasant or even unpleasant level with them, to feed them ideas, to help build innovation, to create feedback loops, um, that brand isn't going to survive the future because the best brands are figuring out how to tap consumer insight and information and, and ideas to make their brand stronger. So we've got, you know, sustainability, innovation, design, insight, and social interaction. And those are, I think, sort of the hallmarks of future-proof brands. We're living in an amazing time. Like I said, my, my vision of the green future didn't come to happen. It didn't come to pass. Right. Uh, but that doesn't mean that, that I'm bummed out. I'm a lot more excited than I was before because I see a much more dynamic vision of the future happening. And what I love is that people don't have this figured out. And, yeah. you know, I look at uh, studies like BBMG did. Um, they did a wonderful sustainability brand perception and reality study with a uh, hundred of the top corporations in the world. And what they discovered that at least half of them didn't line up their brand message with their sustainability actions. The best companies in the world don't know how to do this. And that's exciting news because that means there's a lot of opportunities for smart people with good ideas, you know, who know how to work the internet, who know how to work social media rather, you know, who understand insights and can put these things together. I think it's kind of a, a big puzzle and people who figure out how to look at the whole system and put it all together are going to do extremely well in the future. I agree with you. I think, you know, I think that um, we have to wrap up in a couple minutes, but I, d- the, the, I think it's part of it is, 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 and I think you've written about this, you know, about the hybrid, looking at things as, as more hybrid and not, not just sector specific. I think mm-hmm. we're moving mm-hmm. in that direction. Richard Branson, well, prime example. Yeah, exactly. I mean, uh, you and I were both at the innovation conference and I talked about the uh, business unit as something that was created to take an existing thing and hone it and make it more perfect and how that concept is at odds with creating the future because the future is going to be based on making a function more perfect. That is reading or, or, or commuting or something like that and taking uh, ideas from everywhere 
and and fitting them into that that function, that vision. And I think it's I think it's wonderful. It's sort of a systemic thinking where I look at the world as this vast interconnected system where things tie together that people just didn't imagine would tie together. And that's very mm-hmm. exciting stuff and it leaves a lot of opportunity for entrepreneurs. And creativity, I love it. <laughs> yes, yes. I think, you know, creativity is reassuming its rightful place at the top of the food chain. It's it's wonderful, you know? Thank goodness for that, I'll tell you. Well, it has been yeah. fabulous, fabulous. Enjoy your um, your your tourism conference up there. Thanks for thanks for coming on, and and we'll we'll speak soon. Talk to you soon, Chrissy. Thank okay. you. The proceeding has been Nature of Business with Chrissy Coughlin in association with GreenBiz.com. dot com.